0: What happens to supply chains when trade disputes and a global pandemic collide? On a special episode of Global Translations, presented by Citi, we learn how businesses are prioritizing resilience over efficiency to adapt supply chain networks in the face of disruption. Tune in November 11th, wherever you listen to this podcast.
1: Well, when is this over? I say, personal opinion, it's over when we have a
2: vaccine. You'd be
3: hard-pressed to think of another situation in the world where everyone wants the same materials at the same time.
1: It's over when people know I'm 100% safe and I don't have to worry about this. When does that happen? When we have a vaccine? If you're asking me when is it going to be generally available to the American public so we can begin to take
2: advantage of vaccine to get back to our regular life, I think we're probably looking at late second quarter, third quarter, 2021.
0: I think he made a mistake when he said that it's just incorrect information.
3: And so it's not just about finding which vaccines work. It's about preparing the manufacturing and supply chains for those. And if one little detail in those supply chains goes wrong, we might not be getting vaccines to people when they desperately need them.
2: What evidence do we have that this country will do better if and when there's a vaccine, distributing that the to development large portions of, of the vaccine
1: This is going to be a long like for the rest of the, the year. I say, and the sooner the, the, sooner the, the better, va- better as, as quickly as possible, get the vaccine done faster, on. we are all in
4: In episode one of the series, we talked a lot about supply chains and how they're a tangible, visible side of globalization. Involving ports and factories and technology and what it takes to source each item from a different country.
5: But in this episode, we're going to zoom in on one supply chain in particular. What is arguably the single most important supply chain in the world right now
4: the supply chain for the coronavirus vaccine.
5: And that vaccine is, in some ways, in fact, in all the ways, the key to life going back to normal. If we want schools to reopen,
4: the economy to revive,
5: to go on holidays again.
4: Anything in our society to get back to normal.
5: But it's not just finding a vaccine that works which matters. We then have to produce it and distribute the vaccine at scale. Not just the millions, but the billions. This supply chain really needs to work.
4: And that means a whole number of pieces have to connect for America, for the whole world to get back to normal. So let's get to it. I'm Louisa Savage.
5: And I'm Ryan Heath.
4: From Politico, this is Global Translations. Yay! (laughs) To be clear, on today's episode, we're not talking about the race for the vaccine or the science behind the vaccine.
5: We're talking about the materials we need to manufacture this vaccine before we bottle it up and deliver it around the world.
4: Here's some of what is required in the supply chain. We start with natural resources, sand, special sand to make medical grade glass vials, millions or billions of them. Chemicals, plastic liners, rubber stoppers, factories, trucks, special refrigeration, planes, storage space. And no one country can do it all. Well it's really complicated. This is Sarah Obermall, one of Politico's healthcare reporters who's been breaking news on the race for the vaccine. Any medicine is really complicated, but it's not like churning out a pill where
3: you just have these few raw ingredients and then you can package them and send them out. A vaccine has to be made in a very controlled setting. It requires multiple different pieces, a vial, a syringe, a rubber stopper. Actually, interestingly enough, certain vaccines need to use specific types of rubber or plastic stoppers because of the way that the chemicals could interact with other types. So if a manufacturer can't get their hands on the stopper that they need, that could also be a pinch in the supply chain. So they have to work out all of these before they actually start manufacturing and distributing
4: Now imagine all these pieces needing to link up on this sprawling supply chain, and imagine how fast it needs to happen. This is the fastest that vaccines have ever been developed. Especially given the rush order on vaccine development right now. The fastest ever vaccine before this was the mumps vaccine, which took four years. This means we'll get a vaccine faster. But we've been so busy rushing to get there, is the production and distribution chain even ready? That's the part we're really talking
3: about. And what's significant there is it's not just about science and ingenuity. It's also about readying global supply chains faster than we ever have before for something that every single person in the world is going to want because of the pandemic level that this has reached. And so think about how... You know, it's, it won't be just one vaccine, first of all. There will be several. They're expecting that several will have answers by the end of this year. So we're talking about multiple vaccines, hundreds of millions of doses of them needed right away, and hundreds of millions more needed within the next year, within the next two years. This isn't going to go away quickly. So it's not just about the active drug ingredients, which are made all over the world, but also rubber for stoppers, glass for vials, syringes, cold manufacturing and packaging because a lot of these vaccines have to be kept in stable temperatures it's a really complicated set of processes and it always has been a very global process as well but because of what is happening right now with demand there's a lot of concern about how much of that is in other countries versus in the us and how much of it is in other countries a lot (laughs) Um, especially the drug ingredients so this is something that's been happening well before the vaccine race that we're in right now, India and China account for a lot of the raw materials that are used in making pharmaceuticals. So while a final product might be made in the U.S. or in Europe, a lot of those raw materials are still coming from China and India. There's been government watchdog reports about this. There were calls well before the vaccine race for reducing dependence on those countries for the raw materials that we were getting for drugs, let alone the rubber or glass that we would need for just even packaging them. So that's really top of mind for people right now. And there was a congressional hearing in July.
1: Thank you, Chairwoman DeGette. Today, we'll explore the pursuit of vaccines that could help contain the largest public health crisis the nation has
3: With vaccine manufacturers about what they're doing to prepare to distribute and manufacture these drugs. And a lot of questions were about how much, if anything, was coming from China. Republicans in particular really wanted assurances that none of these products would be coming from China. But it's really hard to turn off that dependence.
4: Can you define internationally? Does that include China?
1: Uh, I, I do not believe so, sir.
2: Can you guys tell me if any of this manufacturing is happening in China? Anybody? Is anybody?
4: It is on the not. Paper? It is not. Lawmakers were concerned with the U.S. reliance on other countries, especially China. And vaccine manufacturers are trying to adapt to these increasing political pressures. What we're doing right
3: now in the U.S. that is different from how it's been before is that it's really been in the dark before how manufacturers will prepare and where they'll get all of these materials from. But a lot of vaccine manufacturers, because of the global environment right now, have been assuring U.S. regulators and government officials that they're going to be doing every step of this process in the United States, at least for U.S. vaccines. So, of course, they're ramping up production in other countries as well, in anticipation that everyone is going to want their eventual vaccines. But they have all been promising that, at least for the U.S., their products will be coming from the U.S. So in order to do that, they're each setting up or ramping up production in different American states just of their own vaccines, you know, the active ingredients that make the vaccine. But then they're also looking around for these things like medical glass and rubber stoppers. And, you know, the U.S. is a major supplier of medical glass, luckily enough for them, but rubber stoppers aren't a huge market. And one of the only major rubber stopper makers in the U.S. is a Pennsylvania company. So it's going to be interesting to see how they're going to be able to ramp up production as well.
4: So are we ready to meet that demand for hundreds of millions of vaccine doses right around the corner? And on top of that, we need glass vials for those vaccines. But there was a big problem. So the glass shortage in particular is really interesting. Vaccines need to be stored in special glass, medical grade glass. And it turns out we need a lot of a particular type of special sand to make that special glass. And I should say, I knew nothing about this before I started looking into it. I'm a healthcare
3: reporter, not a glass reporter. But um, there is a specific type of sand that has to be used for making medical glass. And you can only find that sand in certain areas. Interestingly enough, the U.S. is one of the major suppliers of this sand. But earlier this year, uh, a health official who has since been ousted from his position, Rick Bright, who was the director of the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, began warning that we were already dealing with glass shortages before the pandemic and that we had to bolster the supply chains for these or look
4: into other opportunities for finding glass. President Trump has ordered the U.S. government to move on vaccines as quickly as possible and to develop, manufacture, and distribute 300 million doses of vaccine, an endeavor called Operation Warp Speed. Operation
0: Warp Speed.
4: Back in August, Politico health reporter Dan Diamond sat down with Dr. Anthony Fauci, the top U.S. health expert on the pandemic, to ask him about the challenges of scaling up a vaccine.
1: Beyond just developing the vaccine, there's a lot more to rolling one out. We'll need billions of pharmaceutical-grade glass vials, billions of rubber stoppers, packaging, places to store uh, and refrigerate doses. The scope of the undertaking is massive when you're scaling this vaccine to the public. And some people are worried that it's not going to be possible on the scale that we need it to be. What would you say to those concerns, doctor? Well, that, that, Dan, is exactly the reason why with Operation Warp Speed, one of the two people that were brought in, one was Monsef Salawi, who has extensive decades of experience in the pharmaceutical world, and the other is General Gustav Perna, who is a four-star general in the army, whose job is the kind of logistics, the supply chain that you're talking about. So it's a collaboration Operation Warp Speed, between HHS with Secretary uh, 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 Alex Azar, as well as the Secretary of the Department of Defense, uh, Mark Expert. So we have two people with two major departments in the federal government having individuals who are leading this. And one of them is the supply chain that you're talking about. So to underline the point, you think that military health collaboration is going to deliver the production we need. Yeah, I, uh, the purpose of getting someone of the experience and talent of General Perna was precisely to assure that we can get done with your suggesting. And obviously, you have Alex Azar, who's the chair, of the, the, the secretary of HHS, who has all of the assets of the Department of Health and Human Services involved, FDA, CDC, CMS, NIH, all of them.
4: The U.S. is rushing to find a vaccine, though some major pharmaceutical companies have halted their vaccine trials as of late October.
5: With the Johnson & Johnson vaccine trials being halted.
4: Announcing
0: a halt to its COVID-19 vaccine trials. Sarah
4: Ormol, you're covering this so closely. And it's really interesting because we talk about the vaccine race the way we talked about the moon race, right? Like it's this race between different countries for the glory and for the leadership and who will be first. But it seems that with all the interconnectedness, countries aren't really running in separate lanes, are they? No,
3: absolutely not. It's made it really interesting the way that certain countries have dealt with it. So I'd say that Europe has approached it in this sort of all of us together type of mode, not just in terms of... The shots themselves, which some countries are working together on, although some are going it alone, but in terms of se- securing the supply chain and saying these are things that we know that we're going to need from a manufacturing perspective for our region and potentially for others like Africa. The US, meanwhile, along with Russia and for a time China, has elected to go its own way. And that's not just on access to the vaccines themselves, purchasing them, which of course the US government has spent billions of dollars doing. But again, it's on the supply chains. Initially, it seemed like China was going to go that way, too, with a really domestic focus. But they actually entered into a pool agreement with other countries that the U.S. notably is not a part of. The other notable exception to that pool agreement is Russia. And so it's really interesting because you said, you know, a vaccine race. And it isn't just one vaccine. We're not going to say we have it. We've got this one and we're done. There are dozens that are in trials right now in multiple countries, Russia and China, as well as the US and in Europe. And so we have to come to terms with the fact that A, the first few vaccines are likely not going to be the best ones. And so therefore, B, the supply chain is going to be pressured for a long time because we're going to have multiple different vaccines in multiple countries going into these late stages of trials, going into mass manufacturing at the same time, and then others, potentially better options coming months later and further pressuring those needs.
4: We'll be right back.
0: Successful supply chains have long been defined by profitability and speed, but ongoing trade disputes and COVID-19 are exposing gaping cracks in our global supply chains, forcing many leaders to rethink how they structure their networks. Now, businesses are making big moves, prioritizing resilience over efficiency. I'm Heather Clancy. Stay tuned for a special branded episode of Global Translations, presented by City. We'll look at the transformations brought on by trade impediments, consumer behavior, and digital technologies that make us and our economies more resilient when disruptions like geopolitical conflict and pandemics strike. Tune in November 11th, wherever you listen to this podcast. We're back. What
4: are some other holes in the global supply chain?
2: Every element of that supply chain needs to be managed.
4: Jim Robinson is a former executive with the pharmaceutical giant Merck, where he was the manufacturing lead for their Ebola project. Currently, he's at CEPI, which stands for the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, and he's leading the manufacturing strategy for COVID. Jim is worried about the glass, and the sand, and even plastic bags.
2: Our, our biggest early finding was the, uh, was the shortage in these bioreactor bags.
4: So quick tutorial. Vaccines are produced in stainless steel vessels called bioreactors before they're transferred over to those little glass vials. But the vaccine liquid can't touch the metal shell of the bioreactor.
2: So in general, there's a plastic bag that fits inside the stainless shell where the organisms are, or the cells are grown.
4: So it's kept inside a fancy plastic bag. Think of it like a plastic lining that goes inside your garbage bin to keep the trash from touching the metal can. But instead of trash, it's a life-saving medicine.
2: Those bags are produced by two or three companies that are distributed internationally. Um, but because of the growth in, in gene and cell therapy prior to COVID, there was already a shortage of many of those production components before COVID. And with COVID, the demand has increased significantly.
4: So how do you ramp up production in a global supply chain when you have shortages, say of medical glass or bags?
2: We did a global assessment of where bottlenecks were
4: likely to be. The group that Jim works with, CEPI, is kind of the go-between, an international public-private partnership working with the World Health Organization and governments to coordinate a global response so we don't reach a precarious point with shortages.
2: One of the major pain points early was the shortage of medical-grade glass. And so we um, actually, Sepi has purchased the equivalent of 2 billion doses of vaccine in glass vials and are providing those to our partners so that our, our partners um, who, who weren't diligent in finding that supply would, ha- would, would not be limited by glass. And we have already allocated 100% of those 2 billion doses to our partners. And in the meantime, by the middle of next year, the glass providers have already started to increase their capacity. And by the middle of next year, we don't expect continued constraints in this high-quality glass.
4: CEPI works alongside the World Health Organization and GAVI, which is the vaccine alliance. Together, they created a relatively new initiative that they co-lead called COVAX, which aims to guarantee equitable access to vaccines around the world. It sounds like a lot of alphabet soup, but it's the biggest multilateral effort since the Paris Climate Agreement, with around 180 countries and economies. But the U.S. isn't in it. At CEPI, Jim grapples with the fact that even if one country, say the U.S. or the U.K. or China, does invest in a company that does discover a working vaccine, it's still a global web that is needed to manufacture and distribute it.
2: So I don't know if there is a wholly domestic supply chain for any product. Um, and so our raw materials are sourced from many regions of the world. The and the production equipment also is sourced from many regions. and so I would say there is likely not a national supply chain that exists for for any product. And that is a good thing, clearly, because it means that there's a lot of diversity in supply and usually multiple sources for most materials. But then in times of nationalism, it becomes obviously difficult sometimes to import, export, etc., where each country might be looking to satisfy its own needs and not looking at the bigger picture of maximizing the number of doses available by working in a, in a more coordinated fashion.
3: Put simply, vaccine nationalism is when a country prioritizes its access to a vaccine above everyone else getting
2: it. Vaccine nationalism will prolong
5: the pandemic, not shorten it.
0: Vaccine nationalism puts lives at risks. Only vaccine cooperation saves lives. How great is the threat of vaccine nationalism? Ryan, the
4: tension here is that we're in a global pandemic, but countries are looking for a national solution. But what if you're a country that doesn't have the wherewithal to create a purely domestic vaccine supply chain? Like, what do you do then?
5: Well, you're screwed, Louisa. <laughs> I'm serious. No, really. <laughs> yeah, half the world runs the risk of not getting access to a vaccine, alongside the world's mm. rich countries. But even those rich countries are still running a very high risk. Hmm. So to address that, Covax is using the power of collective action. They're trying to create a smarter vaccine supply chain overall. It's an effort to bring together nine vaccines in development with the money of 180 governments. And altogether, that creates the resources that you need to produce a vaccine really quickly, whenever it is that we get one that
4: works. So what you're saying is COVAX is like a club trying to make sure that all its members get access to that eventual vaccine. But meanwhile, the US decided not to join the club, and it's sort of over here doing its own thing.
5: Uh Uh-huh. And there's a reason for that. Most countries just don't have the options the US does in terms of having so many drug makers. Mm -hmm. But that's still a big risk the US is taking because nearly all vaccine candidates will fail. That's how vaccine development works. It's honestly a lot harder than making masks or making testing kits. So, bottom line... This problem has too many sides for one country or one company to solve it on their own. And then you throw in the fact that it's a race against time. If we fail here, we're losing trillions in economic output and millions might die.
4: Well, right. Well, I think the bigger picture, too, is that we can't really end the pandemic anywhere until we've ended it everywhere.
0: You got it. We will distribute a vaccine.
1: We will defeat the virus, we will end the pandemic. Donald Trump may say it loudest, but all leaders put their country first, and any global response is shaped by an
3: inevitable tension between international bodies, which by their nature promote greater cooperation, and national leaders with an array of domestic concerns.
5: And in a global health crisis like this, companies are obviously asking themselves whether they should be serving their domestic market or the global market. Who are they supposed to prioritise? Who are they legally obliged to prioritize? Well, let's take the Serum Institute of India, for example. They've come up with a pretty neat solution. They're committing to split their COVID vaccine production 50% to the domestic market and 50% to the rest of the world. Now, if you're wondering, why is this relevant to me? Well, remember that the vaccines developed in the US and elsewhere might not work out. You might need India's generosity. You might need someone else's generosity if you want your family to get a vaccine in 2021.
4: Mm, And we've seen American supply chains fail repeatedly in this pandemic. So we can't assume that the vaccine supply chain will work perfectly this time around either.
3: Central to efforts to counter vaccine nationalism is something called COVAX. It's a global plan to allocate vaccines and it guarantees all of them access to a range of vaccines if and when they're ready.
0: But it is
2: not clear if this will work or whether countries will look to secure their own supply first, a kind of vaccination nationalism.
5: The $18 billion COVAX initiative aspires to give lower income countries the same access to coronavirus vaccines
2: as wealthier nations. Right. So I would say first, CEPI has been mainly focused on everything except the U.S., because in our, the U.S. is well in hand. The government is really focused on making sure its citizens get its vaccines. But the rest of the world is not in that same situation. They don't either have the, the infrastructure to, of, of vaccine manufacturers in country, or they don't have access to a lot of the, the tools, etc. So our goal is to really fill in the gaps for the global vaccine ecosystem to help create capacity for the rest of the world, much like the U.S. and the U.K. and Canada are purchasing actually much more vaccine than their countries will need, mainly because we don't know how many of these will work. And so CEPI is really doing What Operation Warp Speed is doing for the U.S., we are looking to do for the rest of the world. One thing that CEPI has done is that we have been able to engage with a a larger regional infrastructure. We've been able to produce doses for now 156 countries that are uh, eligible to get doses from COVAX, and by working in a more global manner versus a nationalistic manner. And for us, we've created, therefore, a, a more regional a global network of supply rather than having everything sourced in just one place.
4: So I'm curious as you look around both the the vaccine manufacturing and and scaling and distribution all the deals the intercountry dynamics the nationalism as you look across all of this what worries you the most?
2: So I would say early on border closings that was the biggest concern that wherever a vaccine might be made, that it would be have to be used to serve the local population before it can be exported. And whereas that is still a risk, I believe that there there will be enough vaccine supply so that that, that will become less of an issue. Mm-hmm. We have created intentionally a regionally diverse network such that we don't have All of our product being made in one location at risk of being uh, blocked by export restrictions. Our doses are coming from multiple regions of the world. Five different continents, 30 different countries are producing our vaccines. And so we have addressed the risk of nationalism through diversification. I would say the next risk is people's vaccine hesitancy. If people are concerned about whether or not this vaccine is safe, they want to take a wait and see, we really could have an issue with vaccine demand being lower than supply. I don't think that's a huge risk. And I think that will be a, a waning risk. Uh, but clearly, people may not want to be the first ones to line up for a new vaccine. Uh, for me, I have a lot of faith in the industry, but it's not something that's globally shared. But really, probably my biggest concern is that we will struggle with equitable access. It's. So true that if we don't protect the world, this will not end. This outbreak won't end until the world is vaccinated. And vaccinating based on people's ability to pay will actually keep this pandemic dragging out for a long period of time. And making sure that we do it based on priority, uh, based on medical need based versus ability to pay, I think allows us to have a, a better global strategy for putting down the outbreak, especially in the highest risk, to minimize the total deaths um, and to then stop the global spread of the virus.
4: When you say, uh, if we don't protect the world, who is we?
2: It's a collective we. It's the, it's the industry. It's all the people making vaccine. It's all the countries who are paying to develop vaccines. It's the global community. It, so it's not a we in a in a political state. It's a it's a we as in collectively mankind working together to to uh, to look at the larger human picture versus local human pictures. And we recognize how difficult that is, especially in an election year. At the same time, it is it's important to look at the again until we're until we're all protected, none of us are protected.
4: Looking across the scale of this challenge, is there any kind of analogy that comes to your mind that something that you could compare this effort to?
2: It's more recent that the world has become more of a global ecosystem. It's been really in the last few decades. And so I don't know that there is an event to compare this to uh, unless you go back to the uh, 1918 flu outbreak. From a response standpoint, it's long claimed that Vaccines are the second most impactful public health intervention in human history, the first being clean water and sanitation. And so when you think about it in those terms, there are still countries that don't have great supply of clean water and sanitation. And and, and frankly, a lot of the, of the infectious diseases are coming from some of those situations. And so um, and, until we solve that problem also... I believe that we will continue to have the significant risk of these uh, novel viruses emerging into the human population that existed for decades or centuries in certain animal species, but hadn't had the opportunity to cross over. And unfortunately, there are many of those in our future. And that's why we really need to get this right.
4: One thing we've been looking across seasons in this podcast has been the U.S.-China relationship. And obviously, there have been a lot of trade tensions and a rising rivalry, both economic and geostrategic, long before COVID. Um, from where you sit and, and what you're working on, how does the U.S.-China dynamic play into um, the, the scaling up of the vaccine manufacturing and delivery?
2: It's it's interesting because there are equally as many efforts in China to develop their own vaccine as there are in the US and the rest of the world. And it's almost as if there's three major groups working on this, the Chinese, the Americans, and to some extent the rest of the world, but even within the rest of the world, I would say there's a large focus on vaccines for India, for example, and how to make sure that we protect the larger populated countries. And so unfortunately this is not a global effort to find a global solution. And and that's the unfortunate part of it. I think that everyone who is working on this will eventually help the global cause. If you, Again, if you take a look at the, the UK, the US and Canada, they've secured five doses of vaccine for every citizen. And we believe that the excess of those will come to the rest of the world. And so I think people are thinking that way as... A global player after taking care of national interests. But I think that's really where, for me, is the biggest disappointment, is that, that we're not... For something like a global outbreak, you would expect a more of a, a aligned global response. And unfortunately, we're just not there yet.
4: Do you feel that it's been an arms race? Is this sort of the opposite of globalization where everything has become very inner focused and nationalistic? That's right. You would think we might learn the opposite lesson.
2: <laughs> yes. <laughs> the challenge here to keep in mind is if you take a look at the last 30 years, there has been a significant outbreak about every five years. Nothing in the scale of COVID. But if you look at the original SARS, if you look at H5N1 flu, h1n1 flu zika virus ebola it's about every five years we have a significant event and it's really why CEPI was created because during the 2014-2016 ebola outbreak even though there was a vaccine on the shelf it took way too long to get it into advanced clinical development and as an, as an approved licensed product and that we recognize the need for a new coordinated international intergovernmental approach to responding to these these, uh, types of threats. And so the U.S. created BARDA after 9-11 to take care of the risk of biomedical threats. And I would say that I think the rest of the world will probably do something similar by building more global capacity post-COVID but still the coordination and the collaboration is really what's gonna make a difference. And I think this is maybe a a great wake up call for us to know that this is not the last one. And then the more we learn from this uh, and looking back and saying, how could we have done better? is a really key element of hopefully how the world responds in a a look back on, on COVID. But it's not enough. Although we're better off than we were Five years ago, we still have a long way to go. And I think the COVID-19 experience has taught us all that.
4: But if you were to wave a magic wand, where is that coordination coming from? Is it coming from national leaders at summits? Is it coming from the WHO? Is it coming from the UN someplace else? What does that look like?
0: I
2: would say yes. (laughs) I I think it really has to be. and And that's one of the challenges. This is an incredibly complex ecosystem. And it's somewhat modeled by politics, but even without the politics, there aren't clear mandates. People are, are taking on roles and assuming roles, but there's not necessarily a great global alignment of how this should be managed. And if we had a global operation warp speed versus a, a country-specific one, it, it might, might be that the type of approach, but how to make that happen is well beyond my understanding.
4: Ryan, I was so struck in my conversations with Jim and Sarah by how much of this is about keeping a very fine balance between being domestically self-reliant versus globally reliant on others. So for example, if you're America, you might address one kind of vulnerability by bringing supply chains home, but then you create a new one because you no longer have a diverse supply chain. Now you're just relying on a single source.
5: Jim made that important point where ending the pandemic is going to take global collaboration.
4: Right, and yet it's the pandemic that has really strengthened the political push from policymakers to make all kinds of important supply chains domestic and not just in the realm of healthcare.
5: Actually, you know what? This sort of discussion it makes all of those trump manufacturing talking points real where we've energized this whole policy conversation about why it matters to have manufacturing in your backyard and how to bring more of those supply chains back home
4: right and and it's not just trump right like biden is talking about build back better so if this has been a wake-up moment about our vulnerabilities Now the U.S. government and politicians across the spectrum are looking around for what levers of control they have to get U.S. companies to invest back in America.
5: Yes, that led to something called industrial policy. The
3: U.S. has pretended to be against industrial policy, but has had one of the most active industrial policies just in a more
0: hidden way. This notion of industrial policy, which... For decades has been the kind of term that would get you kicked out of meetings in uh, most government circles. I guess it's time for us to dust off our history books, Louisa. That's next time on
4: Global Translations from Politico. Our producers are Annie Reese and Kara Tabor.
5: Our senior producer is Jenny Armand, and Irene Noguchi is the executive producer.
4: I'm Louisa Savage, and
5: I'm Ryan Heath
4: thanks to Jim Robinson, Dr. Anthony Fauci, and our political colleagues, Sarah Oermal and Dan Diamond. Global Translations is presented by Citi, a leading global bank.
5: And subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Listen for a branded episode from Citi coming November 11.
4: Thanks for listening and
1: see you next week.